Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen wa salatu wa salam ala ashraf al-anbiya'i wal mursaleen wa ala alihi wa ashabihi ajma'een Rabbana atina fid dunya hasana wa fil akhirati hasana wa qina adab al-nar O Allah, we ask you for the good of this life and the good of the hereafter and to save us from the hellfire Rabbana inna nas'aluka an nakhtim lana khatimat al-hasana O oh Allah, we ask you to allow us to have a good ending in this life. We ask you for a good ending that you make for us and that you arrange for us a good ending in this life. As Ibn Qayyim rahimahullah ta'ala said, ma ta'ishu alayhi, ma ta'alayhi, what you live upon is what you die upon. And what you die upon is what you will be resurrected upon. What you live upon is what you will die upon. And what you die upon is what you will be resurrected upon. And we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for hisabin yasira, for easy reckoning. Allahumma inna nas'aluka hisabin yasira. Oh Allah, we ask you for an easy reckoning. Allahumma hasibna hisabin yasira. Oh Allah, we ask you for an easy reckoning. Give us an easy reckoning. La ilaha illallah. Okay, so alhamdulillah. Sorry, drifted off a little bit. Uh, just in, in my mind, I'm just thinking about all of, you know, the deaths that um, that we are confronted with. Um, I myself know of at least four people this week alone that have died. Circumstances are different in each and every case. Nonetheless, um, four, four individuals that I know of um, died this week. Um, SubhanAllah. And I mean, just the, the, the reminder of death. I don't want to go into that because 
That is my khutbah, inshallah, for next Friday. We will begin a series of khutbahs about death and, and you know the transition from this life to the next. I think it's imperative at this point. Uh, but our discussion tonight will be a continuation of the discussions that we have had in uh, the past couple of weeks, and that is uh, our grown man series, our grown man series, where we are talking to the men of the community, um, as well as the women, but, you know, tailoring, you know, our conversations towards the men in the Muslim community to try to, you know, restore, you know, to reinvigorate them and to restore, you know, the, 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 the life that was knocked out of many of our men due to, you know, circumstances that we are all aware of, uh, you know, in the Muslim community. Um, so one of the things we're going to talk about tonight as I, as I kind of pondered over, you know, what is missing in the Muslim community, what is missing amongst the men in the Muslim community as I'm, I'm, I'm trying to crack the code. And inshallah ta'ala, by the permission of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, I will figure it out. I will figure it out. That's one thing about me that if you were to ask me, give me one quality about yourself um, that you love about yourself, it, it's resilience. I am resilient. I am tenacious. I will figure it out. I promise you. I will crack the code, inshallah ta'ala, to figure out how how do we get around this dilemma of, you know, men in the Muslim community just, you know, not having the desire to get married. That still doesn't sit right with me. Um, it doesn't sit right with me. Uh, in my mind, I'm aware of, you know, a number of issues that contribute to this particular dynamic, but we've only scratched the surface. You know, we're, we're only scratching the surface. The, the issues go deeper and deeper. And as I continue to speak, as I continue to bring on guests to speak about these issues, eventually we will get to the root of the problem. We're just digging right now. We're just digging, you know, getting beneath the surface. That's what we're doing. We're going beneath the surface. We could have scratched the surface and just said, oh, brothers don't want to get married. No, it's deeper than that. It's, it's deeper than brothers just not wanting to get married. A combination, a culmination of all of the things that we have discussed in the past have, are, have, have contributed to that. And things that we will mention moving forward are all contributing factors to why our situation is the way it is. How we can arrange uh, a marriage fair, a halal environment, a, a Sharia compliant environment where Muslim men and women can meet each other in, a, in an environment that is compliant with our legislation. And you have, you know, maybe 50 some odd women and only two or three men. All right. Th there's a reason for that. That is not just, oh, you know, they don't like the person that's organizing it or they don't, you know, get along with this person or they don't. No, it's deeper than that. man. It, it's deeper than that. I promise you. Um, I promise you. And we will get to the root of all of it. We will continue to dig. We will continue to chip away at the symptoms until we get to the root of the problem. And once we do that, it's it's upon you guys to, you know, at that point to decide whether you want the condition to remain the way that it is or you want to change the condition. I can't change the condition. The only thing is I can bring awareness to it. And that's what I'm doing. We're, we're bringing awareness to it. I cannot change the condition. Only you can change that condition. 
If you don't like the condition as it is, then change it. Only you can fix that. Otherwise, we will continue as we are, and that will continue to have a ripple effect on our children and our grandchildren. So one of the things that I think that we're, we're missing out as Muslim men, this is just my opinion. You guys can, you know, you can contest it. You can challenge it as much as you like. But one of the things I think that is missing in the Muslim community is the qualities of men, you know, the qualities of men um, with the lines that have been blurred, you know, between manhood and womanhood with all of the, you know, um, transitioning, you know, transgender, trans transgendering and transitioning. You have men transi transitioning or transgendering from being men to being women. You have women transgendering from being women to being men. You understand? Like, so there, there is an atmosphere that has been created as a result of that. You have feminism, you know, that is, you know, on the rise that, you know, has trickled over into the Muslim community. And all of that is continuously impacting or blurring the lines between masculinity and femininity. You know, it's blurring the lines. And I, and I believe that a lot of men in the Muslim community have, um, and then of course, you got to think about men being raised in homes with just women, no man around, you know, um, these same young boys having absolutely no respect for men as it stands. You take a man who is born, is, is raised in a home with nothing but him and his mom and his siblings, and him seeing his mother play the role of both the, the man and the woman. I'm not, that's not a, that's not a slight on her. That's not, you know, to, you know, um, say anything is wrong with that. She had to, you know, I got, I get it. She had to, there was no man there. So she had to be both the mother and the father. However, the impact that that has on a young boy, a young man watching his mother play both roles, man and woman within that, within that, you know, um, family structure, it does something to the psyche of that boy. He's seeing his mother, you know, chump his father off and talk to his father any type of way, talk to other men, you know, in his life, you know, <laughs> you understand? And so what is the, what message is that sending to that boy? That's sending to that boy. He doesn't have to respect men either. So you have a lot of these young guys, they have zero respect for men. They don't even have any old heads. You know how we used to be like, yo, my old head. You know, I got this old guy, you know, this old head. I got, you know, my, 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 my old guy, you know, who, you know, spit wisdom at me. These young guys, they don't have any old heads. They, they don't have any old heads. <laughs> they don't respect any man, period. They've watched their mother disrespect every single man in, in his life. <laughs> mother has had boyfriends. She's watched them chase man after man after man away, <laughs> right? He's watched his mother chase man after man away. He's watched his mother, you know, <laughs> engage with men who, you know, were not on her level, you know, for, for one reason or another. You have, you know, some women just go after men that they can dominate. It's just very easy. Some women are, you know, some women go after men that they can dominate. They know they they know they can dominate them. They know this man is not on their level, but they don't want to level up because then that means that they would have to change the way that they engage. And they don't want to do that. 
You understand? They don't want to do that. So they go after men that, you know, they make more money than them. They are more educated than them. They're more aggressive and more assertive than them. They go after men like that so that they can control the situation. And, but the whole time you have this young boy watching you dominate every single man in your life. That sends the message to him that he doesn't have to respect men. He doesn't have any respect for men. So if he's in a store and you know you tell him like, yo, my man, pull your pants up, man. It's like, man, who are you talking to? You know, he gonna break bad with you because he doesn't respect you as a man. He's watched his mother dominate every man that he has ever known in his life. He has zero respect for men. Where did he learn it? He learned it from his mother. So this young boy grows up missing out on what it means to be a man, the qualities. <laughs> the qualities of a man they're missing out on. And, you know, here again, that's not to slight anybody. I'm not speaking down on the mother. She had to do what she had to do. She had to be the mother. She had to be the father. She had to be the teacher. She had to be the disciplinarian. She had to be whatever she had to be, you know, to get this boy from childhood to adulthood, you know. But we're talking about the residual effects of that. We're talking about the residual effects of that. So, I think that some of those same men are born and raised into the Muslim community, and some of those same men convert to Islam, and then they bring that mentality with them into Islam. And this is why you have a lot of men who gravitated towards the Salafi movement, not the Salafi Aqidah. Make it, I make a clear distinction between the Salafi Aqidah and the Salafi Dawah movement. Right, to two totally different entities. Salafi Aqidah is one thing. Salafi movement in the West is something completely different. And why many of these young men, especially from prison, as well as from the lower tiers of our society who gravitated towards the Salafi movement, the Salafi Dawah, they gravitated towards that because it, it was predicated on a lack of respect for leadership. They didn't respect leadership, period, even among, even within their own circle. These are the type of men who in a gathering, they would, you know, falsely praise one another. And then behind your back or behind the person's back, they would talk about the person. Oh, you know, he made a mistake here. He made a mistake there. And you're sitting there like, well, why didn't you say that to him? Why you wait till he walk away and then talk about all the mistakes that he made and, you know, backbiting him and talking about him like that? Why not say that to him in his face? This is what they're witnessing. So it kind of aligns with the type of orientation that they have been, you know, that they have been given, you know, since birth. They weren't exposed to real men and how men interact and engage with other men. They weren't, they weren't exposed to that. They, they weren't exposed to that. So there, there was a lack of respect for leadership. You know, you have many Muslim men right now, if you were to ask them, who's, who's your leader? Who, who do you follow in the Muslim community? Like every other religious group, they have leaders, they have leadership, they have a fellowship, they have leadership. They have, you know, community organizations, they have organizers, they have influencers, they have all of that. 
But you come to the African-American Muslim community and you ask them, who's your leader? Who's your influencers? Who's your motivators? Who's this? No, we take from the scholars. Meanwhile, you don't even speak their language. You don't even speak Arabic. But the scholars are your leaders. MashaAllah, what about the leaders right here who share your experience as an African-American Muslim living right here in America? Where are the leaders? Where are the motivators? Where are the influencers? <laughs> Where? They, they have no respect for anybody. No respect for anybody. They don't look up to, they don't respect anybody. Period. And this is what we are dealing with. This is what we are dealing with. So, it's important for us to always go back and look into the Quran and, you know, to review and, and to look at the characteristics Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions in the Quran as it relates to prophets and messengers, 25, 25 men mentioned in the Quran. This is aside from others who are not prophets, without looking at the difference of opinion amongst the scholars, but you have other individuals like Luqman, like Khidr, you had other individuals, you know, Harun, uh, well not Harun, Harun was a prophet, but you have other characters that are mentioned in the Qur'an, other characters who are mentioned in the Qur'an who are also men, and many of their stories are, are you know, shared, many of their story glimpses, whether there's just a glimpse of their story, whether there is, you know, a whole entire story, whether there's sections or portions of their stories mentioned, you have men. How many men are mentioned in the Quran in, in total? There's 25 prophets. Then you have Luqman, you have Khidr, you have other individuals there, Dhul-Qarnayn. You know, you have other individuals that are mentioned in the Quran aside from the 25 prophets and messengers, right? All men and all who have some level of a, a story or, you know, um, a story or, you know, narrative, you know, and it's important for us to kind of take a glimpse into their lives to kind of get an idea of, you know, what what was so amazing about there were uh, in one narration, the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam mentioned 114,000, 114,000 prophets from Adam all the way to uh, Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. From, excuse me, from Prophet Adam all the way to Prophet Nuh, alayhi salam. 114,000 prophets that were sent. And out of all of those, you know, thousands of prophets, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, 124,000. Thank you. 124,000. Out of all of those prophets, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala only selected 25. <laughs> only 25. Only 25 Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala selected to share bits and pieces of their stories because you don't even get the full story. You don't even get the full story. Prophet Yusuf and Prophet Musa salam, are probably the most extensive stories that you will find of all the prophets and messengers mentioned in the Quran. And even in their stories, you know, you don't even get the full the full picture. You got to surmise when you combine their stories, all of the different ayats mentioned about their stories in the Quran, and then what the Prophet ﷺ mentioned, what Abdullah ibn Abbas and what other commentators of on the Quran mentioned, 
and then you can get like a like a just a general story, you know. But out of 124,000 prophets, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala only selected 25 to share with us in his final revelation. You understand? So what is so special about these 25 that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala selected them from 124,000 prophets? So then it makes us wonder, okay, well, maybe I missed something. <laughs> maybe I overlooked something. Maybe I need to go back and investigate and look with a little right? With, with a more, pre more precision, with a more precise glance at their stories to find out what is it that I mentioned? What is it that I'm missing? So I want to, uh, tonight we don't have a, a lot of time. So uh, time is always, you know, our, our nemesis. Right. Time is always our nemesis. And so therefore, um, we're limited. So I'm only going to select I'm going to select five qualities of what it means to be a man from the men that are mentioned in the Quran. Nobody would dispute that. Nobody would argue that that these qualities extracted from these great men that are mentioned in the Quran. And then we can look at these qualities and look at the men in, in the Muslim community and find out, are these qualities available? <laughs> Do we see these qualities, you know, manifesting? And if not, then why not? Why not? What happened? How do we lose this? How do we lose this? So, and, uh, you know, all throughout the Quran, we see stories and glimpses of men that we can use their stories, their qualities, their characteristics as a blueprint for manhood when the lines become blurred and the lines are without a doubt blurred. The lines are without a doubt blurred today. You know, you look at you know, some of the things that you see men do today and you're saying that is not the quality of a man. You know, where where did we lose these qualities? So the, the first quality that I want to look at is strength, right? This is a quality of men. Men, when you when you hear the word man, the first thing that comes to your mind is, you know, strength, physical strength. Obviously, that, that goes without saying, but I'm not just I'm not just concentrating on physical strength. All right, because in today's time, you see, you know, a lot of people posting pictures of themselves at the gym. You see men taking videos of themselves at the gym. You see people standing outside shadow boxing with nobody there with no shirt on. And, you know, and, you know, got it, got it. You know, physical strength is, is very important. That's one of the qualities of of a man, you know, to, to have the physical ability to, you know, um, protect, you know, there are certain qualities that strength, certain things that strength is necessary for, right? Um, and I want to look at that, that quality from um, the story of Prophet Musa, السلام, if you remember when Musa fled Egypt, running to Median, the town of Median, and uh, he saw the two, you know, uh, Wow. She said, I'm not Muslim, but I have been surrounded by Muslim men for over 20 years. And the behavior that you speak of is exactly what I observe and still do from these men. That's that's sad. This is someone who is not even a Muslim, who is attesting 
attesting to the things that we are talking about now. And it's, it's really sad that this is, this is where we are. This is where we are at this point, man. And it's really sad. But if you remember when Musa, Prophet Moses, when he left Egypt, running, fleeing from his, you know, fleeing with his life in fear because he killed a man by accident. And it's one big reason that keeps me from believing in the strength of converting to Islam and engaging with Muslim men. Well, don't make your conversion to Islam predicated on Muslim men or engaging with Muslim men. If you decide that you won't like to convert to Islam, then do that because of your faith in God. All right. Men is just comes with the territory, but it shouldn't be your decision shouldn't be, you know, contingent on, you know, a man. Your decision to become a Muslim is because of your belief that God is only one. He's the only one worthy of worship. The purpose of your existence is to serve him. And that's it. All right. Whether you find a man or you don't find a man. At any rate, um, Musa, he flees Egypt. He heads towards Median. As he gets to Median, he notices that there are men who are, um, you know, who are waiting to, um, you know, waiting to water their animals. And he noticed that there are two women standing off to the side. Um, and after they finish watering their animals, they kind of put a boulder over the mouth of the well, right? To, so nobody else can, can use the water. So Musa comes and he takes the boulder, he picks the boulder up, moves it, and he takes the, the, the animals of the woman without asking. The, the women didn't have to ask. He saw a need and he fulfilled the need as a man. Like nobody had to ask you. And that speaks, you know, to a whole <laughs> it, it, it speaks to a whole nother dynamic in today's time where a man is in a relationship with a woman and she has to ask you to do things that a man should normally do. She has to ask you. A woman should not have to ask you for certain things as a man. A woman should not have to ask you as a man to do certain things. There are certain things that should come naturally, you know, that should come naturally. Musa, when he saw the women standing off to the side, the women didn't have to say, hey, can you help us? You seem like a good guy. Can you assist us? Musa saw the women. He assessed the situation. He saw the men over at the, the well with their animals. You know, they put a brick or boulder over the mouth of the well. He sees the women standing off to the side. He assessed the situation and addresses it accordingly. The woman didn't have to. The woman didn't have to say anything to him. That's strength, not just strength, physical strength. Strength of character, also. <laughs> the strength of the strength of character is is what I'm focusing on. Is what I'm getting to, right? Musa picks it up takes it off, takes the animals and goes over to the well and gives them water to drink. The women never asked him anything. He saw a need and he addressed the situation, you know, accordingly. That's just what men do. That's just what men do. And in today's time, it's in many instances, it's not like that. The woman has to literally hold your hand and walk you through everything. I need this. I need that. When do we start to assert ourselves as men without having to be told what to do? I think as a man, you know, when you 
you you have a wife, you have a family that you know you check the doors before you go upstairs, right? If you have multiple levels, right? You check the the back door, make sure it's locked, secured. You check the front door, you make sure it's locked, secured. Even if you are a man in polygyny, right? Because this is what some men in polygyny do. Like you you're with one wife. And then it's almost as the other wife doesn't exist. That when you're with one wife, the other wife doesn't exist. You don't call her, you don't text her, you don't want nothing to do with her until it is her day. That's not the way that it works. Simply because you wanna placate the feelings of the woman that you are with. That is not the way polygyny works. You call, you text and make sure, hey, did you guys lock the door? Is everything secure? You check the front door, you check the back door, everything locked, everything secure. You know. Is the camera on? If you got a camera, you know, can you see the front door, especially if you live in, you know, certain environments? Especially if you live in certain environments. You don't just go to the wife of another house, you know, to go to the, you know, another wife's house and then totally forget about the other wife that you are still responsible for. Simply because you don't want to upset this wife by calling or texting your other wife. It's, it's necessary. You are responsible. If anything happens, you are responsible. And a woman shouldn't have to tell you that. That's something that as a man that is instinctual, you should already know that. So when Musa sees the women standing around waiting to water the animals simply because they were modest, they didn't want to get in there with the rest of the men, he naturally did with a man, what a man usually does. And he took the reins and he asserted himself in the situation. Right? That's what men do. That's strength. That's not just physical strength, but that comes with a level of confidence. You understand? That type of action requires a man to have a level of confidence. So it's not just referring to physical strength, although physical strength is important. You see all these men posting pictures of themselves at the gym and taking pictures of themselves at the gym. And, you know, great. You know, I'm glad you're buff. You can fight. Got it. Great. But how strong is your character? How strong is your character? I don't care about how strong you are. The Prophet said, The Prophet said, The strong person, the shadid, the strong person, he said that shadid, the strong person, is not the man who can wrestle somebody to the ground. Anybody can do that. If you get mad enough, if you, you know, you get one off on a person, like in a fist fight, in a street fight, you could throw a punch that you didn't even anticipate and hit a person a certain way and the fight is over with. You understand? Anybody can do that. Anybody can do that. He said, that strong, the strength is not being able to wrestle somebody to the ground. He said, He said, but the strong person, listen to this, the strong person is the one who can control himself, not control what is outside, but to control what is inside. Internal strength. 
And that's what, what we are missing in today's time. You got all of the physical strength in the world. Great. You're strong. You're buff. You can fight. You can beat a person up. You can knock a person out. Got it. I got it. Got it. But can you control yourself when you are angry? You can control your external, but you have no control over your internal. Your internal controls you. Anything internally that you do not control will eventually control you, whether that is addiction, whether that is uh, anger, whether that is, it doesn't matter. Anything that you cannot control internally will eventually control you. Anxiety, anger, lack of patience, hastiness, those things will control you because you can't control them. But meanwhile, you're tough, you're buff, you got everybody on the external afraid. But you do nothing for your vices internally. Your vices internally. You ever see a guy buff, strong, can control, can, can lift 450 pounds on the weight? Got it. But you can't lift, you know, that anger when it, you know, when it, encapsulates you. When you're encapsulated by your anger, your anger controls you. Your anxiety controls you, which in turn turns around and controls your situation, right? And this is what's called projecting. You begin to project on other people the things that you cannot control yourself because it takes control over you and it takes control over your entire situation. So I'm not talking about physical strength, although physical strength is a part of that. We're talking about can you control your environment internally? Can you control your environment internally? Yeah, you can lift 450 pounds on a weight. You can put 245s on this side, 245s on that side, and you can get on the bench and you can push and you can record it and you can post it on Instagram, mashallah, and everybody can see how strong you are. However, you are a weak individual because you have no control over your internal environment. You're weak. And these are things that men, unfortunately, don't want to own up to. And how do I know? <laughs> encapsulates me with an E, not with an I, right? To encapsulate, it's with an E, not an I. Um, the, the point that I'm making is that this is the environment that, that, we, are, that we are living in in today's time. This, and, and I mean, this is not a slight on men. I'm just trying to get to the root of some of our issues. And the fact of the matter is that you go to the gym, you're buff, you can fight, you can box, you can do all of that. Great. But then when you have a problem in your marriage, rather than calling somebody who can help you, rather than reaching out to somebody who, you know, has the ability to provide you with some insight as it relates to how to manage your marriage, you totally succumb. You give in to your whims. You give in to your vices. You give in to your weaknesses. Because you are strong externally, but you're weak internally. Think about how many men, how many marriage counseling sessions I have with women who are married, but their husbands don't want to come to counseling. That's a weakness. Because you would rather let your marriage crumble right in front of you than for you to humble yourself and say, hey, I need help. We all need help. 
we all need help. Even a doctor needs a doctor. Even a doctor needs a doctor. Some of Imam Bukhari's students were some of his shuyukh. You understand? Some of his students were some of his teachers and vice versa. And vice versa. So rather than as a man, you saying, you know, I'm, I'm struggling in my marriage over here. I'm having some problems, some difficulties, some challenges in my marriage. I need help. You would rather sit back. Nah, I'm not going to marriage counseling. You can go to marriage counseling. I don't need counseling. Meanwhile, your marriage is crumbling right before you. Five years, seven years, 10 years you've been married. You're about to throw that entire investment out the window simply because you're weak behind, cannot go in front of somebody else who is professional, who has the capability of assisting you in areas where you need it and say, hey, I need help. Can't do it. That's a weakness. I don't care how many weights you can lift. If you would rather salvage your ego and destroy at the expense of destroying your marriage, to me, that is a weakness. To me, that is a weakness. You might see that as a strength. I ain't going to sit in front of no, no brother, going to sit in front of no dude for him to tell me what I'm doing wrong or to tell me. No, because you're weak. But you can get on the push-up bar and you can do 50 pull-ups, you know what I mean? And you can do take pictures of how wide your back is and how many push-ups and pull-ups you can do. You can do all of that because that's the easy part. That's the easy part of being a man. That's the easy part of being a man. The difficult part of being a man is being able to humble yourself to go in front of another man and say, yo, I need this marriage thing, man, is more than what I signed up for. A lot of areas in the marriage that I'm I'm struggling with, man. I need you, I need you to just point me in the right direction, man. You know. I, I need you to point me in the right direction. You know, but you can't do it. Because you have the physical strength, but you don't have the emotional strength. You don't have the emotional strength. You don't have the mental strength. But the Prophet said, The strong person is not the person who can wrestle somebody to the ground. The strong person is the person who can control himself when he's angry. That's real strength. The Prophet was identifying, was highlighting was accentuating what real strength is. Real strength is not the physical ability to throw somebody to the ground. Real strength is being able to dominate, to master your internal world. The ability to master, to dominate your internal world. And, you know, when uh, when the, the, the girl, when Musa moved the boulder and took the animals and gave them something to drink and gave the animals back to the woman, 
the woman went home, the two girls, the two sisters, they went home to their father, who some scholars say was Prophet Shu'aib. Some of them say that it was just a man by the name of Shu'aib. Nonetheless, they went home to their father, right? Impressed, right? Because any woman, when she sees that, she's going to be impressed. That's a quality that women usually look for in a man. That I didn't have to tell this guy to do something. And he went and took some personal initiative and did it on his own. And he was strong enough to carry out the task. That is something that is, you know, that's admirable. Women admire that. So what was she going to do other than go home and tell her father? Go home and tell her father. Let me say that again. Go home and tell her father. You guys didn't catch that in the story? You guys didn't catch that in the story? She went home and told her father. She didn't sit there and talk to him. So, um, how much can you lift? Um, you lifted that boulder pretty easy, you know, like, wow, look at the muscles. Like, you know, how long you been working out? You married? She didn't start kicking it with him. She didn't start kicking it with him. She went home and mentioned what she needed to say to her father, who obliged her. She went home and she said to her father, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala captured. This is the beauty of, of the mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, number one, and the beauty of the Quran is because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala captured bits and pieces of conversations. I'm sure that there was a whole entire conversation between that girl and her father when she went home, but Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala only captured a portion of that conversation and put it in his final revelation for us to benefit from. Allah captured a portion. <laughs> you understand? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Quran, وَقَالَتْ إِحْدَاهُمَا Right? This is in surah number 28, surah Al-Qasas, ayah 26. وَقَالَتْ إِحْدَاهُمَا يَا أَبَتِ اسْتَعْجِرْهُ She went home and she said to her father, right? يَا أَبَتِ Oh, my father, right? She didn't say anything to Musa. She appreciated it, but she didn't say any. This is the beauty of a woman in learning how to carry yourself. See, I, I didn't want to kind of go into the women, but since we're here, shape is shape youth color. I got to mention it, right? The thing about the women in today's time, you guys leave nothing to the imagination. You expose everything. And I get it. Sometimes you have to be assertive. You have to, you think being, you know, an open book and leaving nothing. And, and part of that reason is because we're not dealing with the brightest bunch of men in our society. So you got to spell everything out for them. You, you can't leave anything to the imagination because leaving it to the imagination with many of these men, it will remain stuck in their imagination. They will never bring it into fruition. <laughs> It will remain in the imagination. You can't leave anything in the imagination. There was a time, I believe in like the early 1900s, when authors, they would write books. Um, they would write, they would write books and they would leave it, they would leave their comments and phrases and, you know, they would leave it open-ended. 
so that to stimulate the imagination of the reader. In today's time, we got to spell everything out for you. And even after we spell everything out, you still don't get it. I can post a flyer and say that we're going to be here at this time. And then I'll have some genius underneath in the comments say, when is the when is the program going to start? It's right there on the flyer. It's right there on the flyer. I'll, I'll get a text message. Yo, I heard you having an event. Dude, where did you hear that I was having the event? Somebody told you, some, you saw the flyer on my page, but you want a personal invite from me. So rather than you just being able to say, okay, I saw it on this page and I'm just going to show up, you want to send me a personal text message, hey, you're doing an event? It's just like, dude, the only reason why you're asking me am I, am I doing the event is because you saw the flyer. What do you need, a personal invite? Serious? Serious? This, this is where we are. I got to give you a personal invite. You can't just say, I saw the flyer. I'll be there. That's my man. The event. I'm supportive. Whatever. I'm going to show up. <laughs> no, I got to get a personal invite from you. Oh, so what time is the event? It's like, dude, everything is on the flyer. Everything is on the flyer. I got to spell everything out for you. And so it forces women to, to, to become an open book. There was a time when women used to leave things to the imagination. So because that was part of the chase, as, as my wife said the other day, as a woman, you are the prize. And when you are a prize, when you see yourself as the prize, you don't have to expose everything because you know the man will chase. He is the hunter. And he will hunt until he gets you. But in today's time, women have become the hunters. Women have become the hunters because this is the type, the caliber of men that we are dealing with. This is the caliber of men that we're dealing with. So you can't leave anything to the imagination. So you have to now wear overgarments that expose, that accentuate your breasts, that accentuate your hips, that accentuate your butt, that accentuate different parts of the body. Because if you were to leave anything to the imagination, you're probably going to be overlooked. That's a fact. He has to have it laid out in front of him. Breasts laid out, a little bit of cleavage showing, you know, hips and and behind, he has to see everything because that's the only way you're going to get his attention. If you leave anything to the imagination, you're going to end up becoming overlooked. You'll be overlooked. Very sad for the sisters who wear niqab, who wear all black, whose garments are, you know, free flowing, you know, not hugging the body. And, you know, they observe the Islamic, you know, the Islamic rules and regulations as it relates to the abaya. They're, they're overlooked. They're overlooked. That's a fact. So it's a double-edged sword because although you want to wear niqab, you want to wear, you know, clothing that doesn't, you know, accentuate your body because you, you love modesty. You love modesty. You love haya. You, you incorporate that. That's part of our deen. The Prophet said every religion has its main quality, its number one quality. And the number one quality of Islam is haya. The number one quality of Islam is haya, is modesty. And so you as a woman would, not, would love nothing more than to observe that. But the type of men that you're dealing with, if you were to do that, you are going to be overlooked. That's a fact. So I get it. 
Now, we can't blame the women for the way that they have dressed, what has happened to the hijab, what has happened to the abaya, what has happened to the overgarment. We can't really blame them for that because part of the problem is us as men. So while we sit there and we condemn sisters for the way that they're dressing now and what has happened to the overgarment, what has happened to the abaya, what has happened to, you know, a lot of sisters not wearing niqab anymore, you know, while we condemn them for that, we don't really look at, that's just a symptom. That's just a symptom of what the real problem is. The real problem is that as a man, when a woman is fully covered and you can't see anything, it's hard for you to tap into your imagination. It's hard for you to look at her character and the way that she carries herself and say, hmm, that seems interesting. I remember as a non-Muslim seeing a Muslim woman for the first time in my life with all niqab and, you know, dress. I never forget it. I had never seen anything like that in my entire life. I had never seen anything like that. This woman jumped out of a car, a Lexus, and walked into a, you know, a beauty salon. She had on a green abaya, niqab, everything. Glove. I had never seen anything like I'm a non-Muslim standing in front of the Chinese store doing whatever I was doing. And I'm like, what in the world is that? They're like, oh, that's one of the Muslim girls. And it's like, Muslim? I ain't never seen no Muslim woman dressed like her. We used to see in the, you know, Nation of Islam. We used to see in the, the, the hijab behind the ears and the earrings and, you know, the jeans and, you know, you got it. So, you know, seeing that, you know, and I'm like, what in the world is that? And it, it taps into your psyche because you're like, I want to know more. I'm interested. I want to know more. Where where are you going? Like, where are you from? What planet did you jump off of? Like, is, are there more of you? You know what I mean? Like, you, you, you're interested. And I was a non-Muslim. I wasn't even Muslim. And today, a sister can walk by with niqab, jilbab, and abaya on, and you can't see anything, and she will be overlooked. But the sister who has on a tight abaya, you know, her breasts accentuated, her, her body, her hips, being accentuated, her abaya is see-through. If you're looking at it in in the in the, light, in the right type of light, we will overlook the sister with the niqab and all black on, and we'll focus in on the sister who we why because if you leave anything to the imagination, you're going to be overlooked. That's not for everybody, but it is. <laughs> it is. So. It's very important, man, that we look at, you know, the symptoms and then we get to the root problem. We get to the root of the problem, you know. So she goes to her father and she says, yeah, Ebeti, oh, my father, it's the Jirhu, hire him. Hire him. It's not the type of bias sisters are thirsty for attention. It's not that they're thirsty for attention, because if a woman was the prize, she wouldn't have to be thirsty for attention. The fact of the matter is that men, we are not, we are no longer hunters. We are exploiters. We're not hunters. We're not hunting the women in the community. We are exploiting the women in the community. And the women who have, you know, suffer from some level of desperation you know, for one reason or another, they acquiesce. This is what will get the attention. It's not that she's thirsty. It's not that she's thirsty for attention. 
It's just that this is the only way you will get attention. What brother is going after the sister who wears a, a big abaya and you can't see any of her body parts and she wears niqab or, you know, she's modest dressed? What brother is going after her? Please tell me. We had 33 sisters register for the marriage fair. We had two brothers. The brother's not checking for you. You come into a marriage fair to sit down with a brother with a wali involved and, you know, follow the Islamic protocol. No brother is interested in that. I, I wouldn't say that she's thirsty. I just think that she's there's a level of desperation here. There's a level of desperation. And in, in the case of Umar, uh, he said, that if poverty was a man, I would kill him. Why? Because poverty creates desperation. And I'm not, and although Umar's comment was in the context of poverty in terms of, you know, poverty is, you know, in the context of money and, and sustenance and resources, we're talking, I'm talking about poor in, in terms of, you know, companionship, desperation, period. Desperation. Desperation. If poverty was a man, I would kill him. Because poverty creates desperation, and desperation will drive people to do things that they wouldn't normally do under regular or normal circumstances. You understand? So, I mean, I think we should kind of change the language a little bit when you say, oh, sisters are thirsty. They're not thirsty. These sisters are not thirsty. These sisters just want to be married. That's thirsty? No, it just they understand that, you know, supply and demand. We understand that. If you don't dress a certain way, you will be overlooked. And if you do dress a certain way, there's a there is a possibility that you might attract somebody's attention, but it's nine times out of ten going to be the wrong, you know, it's going to be the wrong attention. I promise you that. Nonetheless, the, the woman she goes to her father and she says, Yeah, Abitis Jiruhu, oh my father, hire him. In the Khaira Minister Jarata Al Kawi Al Amin. She said, Oh, my father, hire him. The best person, the best person that you can hire is Al Kawi, the strong, wa Amin and trustworthy. The Kawi, strong and trustworthy, Al Amin. So as a woman, she understood the value of these qualities, you know. It's not just the physical strength but also the moral strength, also the emotional strength, also, you know, the, you know, the strength to control your character, you know. And this is, of course, the quality of leadership that we are, le le we are, we're missing today, you know, al-quwa, you know, strength, not physical strength, the strength to say the truth, even if it costs you your life. We have, you know, Muslim imams, students of knowledge who dance around the truth, you know, regarding certain issues simply because it may affect their job, it may affect their employment, it may affect their money, it may affect their brand, it may affect, so we dance around certain issues and we don't call certain people out and we avoid certain conversations and we avoid saying certain things. This is all a lack of kuwa, a lack of strength. Not physical strength, but strength of character. The Prophet ﷺ said that the best jihad, afdalu jihad, the best 
form of fighting in the cause of Allah. Kalimatul Haq in the Sultan al Ja'ir. The best type of jihad that a man can wage, the best type of war that a man can wage is to say the truth in front of an oppressive authority. Kalimatul Haq to say the truth in the Sultan al Ja'ir. To say the truth. It was just brought to my attention the other day. Uh, a brother that I know, good brother know, uh, I know, he just came back from Saudi Arabia. And so I said, um, you know, like, what's what's the joke? Like, what's the atmosphere, you know, in Saudi Arabia now since COVID and blah, blah, blah. So we start talking. And I said, well, you know, I haven't really heard much from the ulama in, re in regards to the vaccination, and, you know, whether we should take it or not. Like, you know, what are the scholars saying in Saudi Arabia? I, I get it. I know that. Mohammed bin Salman being in the position of authority, a lot of scholars have, you know, kind of backed off and, you know, have, you know, avoided, you know, the public platforms and things like that. You know, I, I get it. I get it. And he was like, um, um, Sheikh Salih Fozen, you know, he's one of those scholars that, you know, he's like, you know, some scholars that, you know, they say they peace and they don't really care. And he said, you know, there's some scholars who, you know, are very political and diplomatic and the way that they phrase things and say things. And he said, you know, Sheikh Saleh Fozan is one of those those scholars who, you know, he don't fear the authority. He don't fear. He say what he believes is the truth. And that's that. And that's something that I got from him from, you know, the times that I had the opportunity to meet him personally. And he said that, you know, Sheikh's, uh, um, um, that he said that, you know, the vaccination was haram. It's haram to take it. That was that was his phrase. I will find whether or not this is public information and you know I can document his fatwa or his fatawa or his comment or statement or whatever the case may be. But Sheikh Saleh Fozan, uh, as what he as per my conversation with him, he says Sheikh Saleh Fozan said publicly it was haram to take the vaccination. Haram. I'm not saying that now for you guys to say, oh, I don't have to take them because at this point it's a personal choice. At this point, you know, nobody can make this decision for you. You know, this is a decision that you have to make. No fatwa, no scholar, no alim, no student of knowledge can, you know, save your job or, you know, save your employment. No, this is, no, this is your own personal journey. And you have to, you know, you have to worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala based upon the way that you see fit. Nobody can make that decision for you. You know? Nah, not all of the ulama endorses. Sheikh Saleh Fozan said it's haram to take it. Because of obviously the human cells, you know, other things that the, the, the vaccination is made with, and you're injecting that into your body, this is not permissible. Not permissible to inject human cells into your body and how that conflicts with the structure, the neurological structure of your own body, your brain, and how that's going to, you know, how that's going to affect you. I mean, here again, you can disagree with that. You can say, you can say, no, I don't, I don't take that. And this shake said that you can do whatever you want to do at this point. I'm not saying that to endorse it one way or another. You, many of you guys know me, my position as it relates to the vaccination has not changed. I'm not injecting that stuff into my body. That's my personal view. That's my personal view. I don't impose that on nobody. I don't tell nobody to follow my position. The thing about it is that my job, my employment is not contingent on whether or not I take a vaccination or not. Some of you do not have that luxury. Some of you do not have that luxury. 
So you have to, you know, you have to make the choice. That's totally up to you. And nobody can shame you for it one way or another. If you feel that your job is in jeopardy, your employment is in jeopardy, and you don't have a contingency plan, and this is all you have, and that's what you choose to do, then that's on you. If your employment is in jeopardy and you know you have a contingency plan or you willing to just say, you know what, I'm gonna put my trust in the law, but I am not injecting that stuff into my body. It is what it is. I put my trust in the law subhanahu then nobody can shame you or blame you for that. This is what you worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala with. This is your own personal individual choice. And you always have a choice. Don't say they leaving me no choice. You always have a choice. At the end of the day, um, the woman said that the she said to her father, in the khayra min al-qawi al-amin, that the best person that you can hire is al-qawi, the strong, al-amin, and the trustworthy one. Which brings me to my second quality of what it means to be a man is trustworthiness, al-amana. Al-Amana, right? Um, the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, he said, La deen liman la amana lahu. There is no deen, there is no religion for a person who does not have any amana, any trustworthiness. There is no deen for a person who does not have any amana. As a matter of fact, the Prophet ﷺ mentioned having a lack of amana, a lack of trustworthiness is a sign of a hypocrite. The Prophet ﷺ said three qualities or four qualities in one narration. There are four qualities of a hypocrite. Whoever possesses all four, then he is a complete hypocrite. Whoever possesses one or more of the qualities that he possesses traits of a munafiq, of a hypocrite, until he gets rid of that quality. And the first thing he mentions, that when he is entrusted with something, then he proves untrustworthy. He proves untrustworthy. So let's look at this in the context of marriage. The Prophet ﷺ mentioned in his last khutbah, treat your woman kindly. You have taken these women as an amana, meaning the woman is a trust that has been given to you as a man. The woman is a trust that has been given to you as a man. The Prophet said one of the characteristics of a hypocrite, that one of the characteristics of a hypocrite, that when he is entrusted with something, he proves untrustworthy. When a father gives you his daughter's hand in marriage, that is an amana, that is a trust. When an imam gives you one of the women in his community to you in marriage, as a man, that is a trust. When a wakil or a wali sits down with you and gives you this woman that he is responsible for, her hand in marriage, that is an amana, that is a trust. And what did the woman say to uh, 
Shu'aib to her father, she said, in the al-Amin, the best person that you can hire, meaning the best person to entrust somebody with is the, the person who is strong and the person who is trustworthy. And Shu'aib ended up marrying that daughter to Prophet Musa. Musa took his daughter's hand in marriage. Took his daughter's hand in marriage. Yeah, I, I mean, we have to look at that. Trustworthiness is part of the qualities. Of, so let's talk about what is trustworthy. What does it mean to be trustworthy? That means that somebody can give you something of value and you will value it the same way the person valued it who gave it to you. That, that's what an amana is. I give you something of value and you value it as I would value it. <laughs> you understand? You would value it. So if I give you my daughter's hand in marriage as an amana, then you will value my daughter the same way I value my daughter. That's an amana. That is a person who is al-amin. The Prophet ﷺ, his nickname was al-amin. Al-Ameen, right? Before he became Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, the messenger of Allah, he was his nickname in Mecca was Al-Ameen. Give it to Al-Ameen. Meaning the people in Mecca knew the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa his reputation in the city of Mecca was known as a person who was trustworthy. Meaning they would give the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa their valuables to hold. Don't you know you guys may not know this. One of the reasons why the Prophet ﷺ was the last person to leave Mecca to migrate to Medina was for what? Why was he the last person? Why did all of the Sahaba, he tell all of the Sahaba to go ahead and he wait, he waited. <laughs> he waited. One of the reasons he waited was because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala didn't give him permission to leave yet. But there was another reason. There was another reason. The reason why the Prophet ﷺ stayed back and was one of the last people to migrate from Mecca to Medina was because he had to return all of the valuables, you understand, to the people who gave them to him. And these were people who were trying to kill him. I want you to understand something. These are people who are trying to kill him and he's going to stay behind and risk his life to return back to the people, the amana, the trust, the valuables that he had in his possession that belonged to them. Because what would have happened if he was claiming to be the messenger of Allah and migrated from Mecca to Medina without returning those valuables that he had in his possession back to their rightful owners? That would have been used against him later on to discredit his claim as a prophet and as a messenger. You're no prophet. You're no messenger. I gave you something. I gave you some valuables to hold. And you fled to Medina with my valuables. Where are my valuables? You understand? It would have been something that they could have used to discredit his message. And so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala delayed the command for the Prophet ﷺ to migrate from Mecca to Medina until he returned the trust back to their rightful owner. 
so as to protect his message later on. You understand? All of the claims that they made about him beforehand, you're a liar, you're a kadab, you're a liar. Now they could say you were a thief. It would have justified everything that they said about him previously. And you know, as the scholars, they have a phrase, you know, Aina sakht tubadi al ma'adir, that the eye of hatred, the eye of hatred sees all your flaws and your mistakes. Meaning when a person doesn't like you, they only need a spark, you understand? They only need a spark. That's all they need. They only need a spark. When a person doesn't like you, when a person doesn't like you, they're already looking for the flaw and the mistake. So all it takes is for one little thing for you to do for them to discredit everything because they already don't like you. Right, and the, the owners of the, the valuables were disbelievers, yes. These were people who he was, <laughs> right, and the spark may not hold any real value, but that's all they needed to, you know, to jump on their soapbox to begin discrediting you. That's all they needed. And so everything that they had said about the Prophet Sallallahu up to that point would have been justified. Oh, he left Mecca and went to Medina with my valuables. He's no, he, he is a liar. He is a soothsayer. He is this, he is that. They, they would have, it would have justified everything. SubhanAllah. So we're talking about trustworthiness. That when a man gives you his daughter's hand in marriage, that means that you are going to value that woman the same way that that father, the imam of that masjid, you know, this wali or wakil would value that woman. And for walis who are, you know, standing in walis, you don't know this woman from a can of spray paint, but the imam asked you to overlook her affair, then you should feel the weight of that responsibility, not just push the, the, the responsibility off on the brother, the first brother who comes to ask for her hand in marriage. The wali has to feel the weight of the responsibility evidenced by the fact that the title that you retain as wali is mushtaqun min ismin min asma'illah, that it is a derivative of one of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's names, al-wali. You are the little wali responsible for this woman, this female servant of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the wali, the real wali, the guardian over all of you. So when you assume the role as a wali, then you have to fill the weight of that responsibility. You carry the name that is derived from the name of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You are a wali. Allah is the wali over all of you. You are the wali over the woman. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is over the wali over both of you. And just as Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala guards you and protects you and care for you, you should do with that woman the same exact way. Even if you don't know her. I don't, I don't have to know you, but I know how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala values you. I know how Allah sees you as a woman in, in Islam. As Allah says in the Quran, Ya Nisa and Nabi, lestunnaka ahadam min nisa Oh, you women, oh, you followers of the Prophet, oh, you women of the Prophet, the initial address was to the wives and the daughters of the Prophet wasallam, but the general command was for all of the women in his ummah. 
women of the Prophet, you are not like any other women. You are not like any other women. And if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala puts Muslim women on that pedestal, regardless of whether you see them like that, oh, she's been married before, oh, she got a couple of kids, she's been married three or four times, she got three or four or five kids, so what? You don't know her circumstance, you don't know her situation. The fact of the matter is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala regards that woman as being unique and she is different from any other woman. So that means that you should regard her the way that Allah regards her, not according to your standards or the standards of the society that you live in. It's not about your standards personally. It's not about the standards of the society that you live in. It's about how does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala regard that woman? And with all of the self-hate that we deal with as African-Americans, it's very easy for us as an as a African-American man to devalue the African-American woman. We do it all the time. We sit and listen to music, songs that devalue women. The only genre of music in our society that downgrades and devalues and completely disrespects black women is rap music. And we sit and dance to it, bop to it. I've literally come on social media and scrolling through Instagrams and you see memes that have certain songs playing in the background and women themselves dancing to it. It's like, how are you advocating for women's rights? Like you just set yourself back 20 years. <laughs> you just set yourself back 20 years. How are you doing a meme and in the background is a song playing that devalues women and you're dancing to it. You're doing a meme to it and you're posting it on. Did, did you not hear the lyrics to that in the background? Did you not hear that? Some people, girls have their daughters. You sitting there with your daughter creating a meme and the song playing in the background is so degrading. So degrading. Yeah, Muslim women too. Absolutely. And, and it's just, you just set yourself, like, don't open your mouth to talk about women's rights and, you know, misogyny. Like, come on. Like, you. Like, the, the point that I'm making is that if a woman from a different culture, let me, let me, you guys are not going to like me for saying this, but. So be it. <laughs> if a woman from another culture, think about when uh, a Caucasian woman converts to Islam in one of our communities, right? Think about we go to, we, we in a Muslim, African-American Muslim community, and a sister from an, another culture converts to Islam, whether she is Hispanic, and I've seen this with my own eyes, Hispanic, or white, or from any other culture, convert to Islam. Look at how we hover over her. Look at how overprotective we are over her. We might even reserve her for the Imam. <laughs> you understand? But let an African-American sister convert to Islam. You understand? We have to think about the deeper psychological, you know, programming that is at play here. I've seen this with my own eyes. 
when a when a Caucasian sister convert to Islam, we hover over her and we protect her and, you know, only the best in our community can come forward and, you know, take her hand in marriage. But let a sister convert to Islam who might have a couple of tattoos, who might have a couple of children, you know. Oh, she's fair game. Anybody can marry her. Anybody. You can have the brother who stand in front of the masjid who sell oils, who only got two pair of pants to his name. And he gonna go to the imam. So, uh, brother imam, that sister that just took shahada, she she interested in marriage. You wanna have a sit down with her, Shake? Yeah, I, I'll have a sit down with her. It's just like, dude, like, <laughs> like a woman wouldn't marry you on her worst day. Like, come on, man, are you serious? Are you serious? Right. Anybody, she's fair game. Anybody. <laughs> anybody she's fair game <laughs> and, but the thing is is that sometimes we do it without even thinking about it i'm just bringing it to the forefront i'm just bringing it to the forefront but it's it's true <laughs> it's a fact i've seen it with my own eyes you know now we it's, it's in a manner you have to be you have to have the amana. Men have to be trustworthy. I mean, you have to be trustworthy. You have to regard the Muslim woman the same exact way that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala regards her. You don't get to tell a woman what she can ask for as a dowry and what she can't ask for a dowry because of how many men she's been with and how many children she has previously. Meanwhile, how many women have you been with? How many children do you have that we know of? And then you get to tell a Muslim woman what she can ask for as a dowry and what she can't, when it's being excessive and when it's not being excessive. A Muslim woman can ask for whatever she wants to ask for as a dowry. The fact of the matter is that you can either handle it or you can't handle it. But don't discredit her. Don't shame her for asking for a certain amount simply because you can't give it to her. Just simply say, I, I don't have it like that. <laughs> you understand? I don't have it. But don't shame her for asking for it simply because you just can't, you don't have, you know, the 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 fortitude, the personal fortitude to just simply say, you know, that's, that's beyond my pay grade, sis. I, I don't have it like that. I would give you the world if I could. <laughs> right, it does happen with the brothers. A white brother converts to Islam and, you know, in two weeks he's a sheikh and he's giving lectures. <laughs> Learn a little bit of Arabic, few Arabic phrases, you know, read a few books and, you know, off you go. He's giving lectures you know, at ICNA, ISNA, major Islamic conferences and, you know, yeah. We've seen it. Yeah. 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 I'm just I'm I'm just stating stating the facts, man. Like the thing is is that we as a people we hate when people bring things to our attention. We we don't like that. We become like 
the, there should be a thing called black fragility, right? We have white fragility, right? Which is white people become fragile when you start talking about racism and systematic racism and, you know, instances of racism and how, you know, they might not be necessarily be a racist, but they're part of a system that, you know, affords them the opportunities that doesn't afford us opportunities. So assist, so essentially you are part of the problem. You understand what I'm saying? Like, no, you might not be a racist as a white person. You might not be a racist, but you are part of a system, right, that affords you opportunities off of the backs of me and the people that come from where I come from. So essentially, you are part of the problem as well. And they don't like when you say that. They become very fragile and they start to, you know, deflect. And, you know, they don't, this is why it's called white fragility. But you have black fragility as well. Black people become fragile when you start talking about our trauma, when you start holding a mirror up to us. Right. You start you hold a mirror up and you start showing us ourselves. Right. This is why we used to get into fights back in the day. You're looking at the person. You're like, what you looking at? It's like, does he see me? Does he really see me? Does he see the broken me? Does he see the broken little man? Right. The Wizard of Oz who is hiding behind the sheet and has this loud voice. But when you remove the sheet, he's just this broken little man standing behind, right? Absolutely. A lot of us are like the Wizard of Oz. We hide behind the sheet, hoping that nobody sees us. So we raise our voice, not because we are assertive, not because we're strong, not because, you know, that male bravado. No, we raise our voices because that is the smoke screen. We don't want you to see us. And we do that in the Muslim community with all of this knowledge that we have of the religion. We're so knowledgeable. You know, we got Quran and Sunnah. We can quote ayats and quote hadith and quote Arabic and quote scholars, quote shakes this, shake that, because all of that is a smokescreen. God forbid you're able to see beyond all of that and see what broken little man I really am. You understand? Yeah, it's a fact. It's a fact. Here again, the lack of strength. Can't just come out and say, you know what? I have some weaknesses, you know? I, I struggle. I have some challenges. I have some struggles in my area, but and that's okay. You know, I'm going to get beyond that, you know? No, I got to raise my voice and I got to come off condescending. I got to come off arrogant. I got to come off like I'm better than you. I got to come off like shaitan and a khayru mink. I'm better than you. You created me from fire, created him from dirt. I have knowledge. I sat with this scholar, sat with this sheikh, sat in this scholar, sat over here, went to Egypt, went to Yemen, went to Saudi Arabia, went here, here, here. All of that is a smoke screen because behind all of that, what are you? You are a broken little boy who needs healing. You are a broken little boy who needs healing. That's a fact. So amana, trustworthiness, is something that, you know, is a quality of, of men that we are la we're we're losing today. You know, the the ability to honor and to value things the way that they should be honored and valued, you know. 
honor and value things that should be honored and valued. Marriage is not honored and valued in our communities. Women are not honored and valued in our communities. Children are not honored and valued in our communities. Children. Children are not honored and valued. I received an email the other day, and this particular individual said, can you give me some Dalil? I want you guys to listen to this. The person said, can you give me some Dalil, some evidence that the child of the bed is to be, he, the, the man who fathered the child of the bed is supposed to take care of the child. First of all, I'm not referring to my child or not allowing somebody to refer to my child as a child of the bed. This is a whole human being here. You don't, and I mean, for you to father this child, for you to father this child and then turn around and refer to this child as a child of the bed, as if this child is not yours biologically, as if this child is not from your loins, this is not your seed that you put into a place that you should have had no business putting it there. The seed did not end up in that woman's womb by itself. And then you turn around and you refer to this child as a child of the bed. And then what's even worse than that, you leave it upon the woman to go out and seek knowledge and information from Islamic leadership to force you to take care of a child that is yours. Mind-blowing, man. Mind-blowing. Mind-blowing. You would never think that someone who prays five times a day, someone who says, La ilaha illallah, Muhammad Rasulullah, could ever resort to this type of behavior. Much less, you know, the salt in the open wound to turn around and refer to the child as a child of the bed. You know what my response was? I, I mean, after just kind of processing it, I'm just like, how do I even respond to something like this, man? And I said to the sister, I said, listen, if you have to convince a man to take care of his child, is it even worth it? If you have to convince a man to take care of a child that he helped create, is it even worth it? I'm not providing you with no delil. <laughs> I'm not giving you no evidence from the Quran and the Sunnah. Like I'm, I'm not doing that. I'm not feeding into that because that plays into his ego. Nah, not doing that. I'm not playing into your ego. And anything she brings you is going to be contested with, well, this shake said here, or this shake said there, and I read over here. Man, miss, just go about your business, man. <laughs> go about your business. Go about your go, go run, because that's what you do. Right? And then, you know, you have some genius that come on my page and say, oh, I notice you only talk about marriage and, you know, family. Yo, uh, is that all you talk about? Yep. <laughs> yep. 
Okay, moving right along. The next quality of men that I think is, is missing in today's time is ilm. Now, knowledge. <laughs> knowledge. And the example of, of that, of course, in the Quran is none other than the first man created, and that is Prophet Adam, alayhi salam. Knowledge. knowledge no what they want you to speak about is aqidah minhaj uh you know this sheikh said warning against this and people innovation because as long as you talk about that you don't have to talk about what's real and you guys have been bedazzled with all of that talk for the past 20 years and where has it gotten us your minhaj straight but your morals are jacked up <laughs> Your minhaj is straight, but your morals are incapacitated. MashaAllah. Your minhaj is straight, though. Who you take from, scholars you take from, MashaAllah, but your morals are horrible. Minhaj is straight, but your morals is a little out of whack. Let me know how that works out for you. SubhanAllah. Yeah, we've been bedazzled with that talk for 20 years. Meanwhile, marriages have crumbled. We've lost three, four generations. You know, all of the children who were born in, in you know, the, the early 2000s who are now in their 20s, some of whom might be parents now. That's one generation, two generations gone. What, what has it produced? What has it produced? Show me. Show me what it has produced. Where are all the where are all of those children of the Minhaj lectures and you know the Aqidah lectures and Minhaj lectures? Where are all of those children? And where are their families and their their spouses and their children? And you know, where are they? Number three, from the characteristics of men that we get from the prophets and messengers in the Quran is the characteristic of knowledge, of ilm, of knowledge. That men can't lead without knowledge. You can't be an ignorant leader. You can't be an ignorant leader. As a man, you have, you have the capacity for leadership. You have the capacity for leadership. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created Adam first. You have the capacity for leadership. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala made men, all men, all prophets and messengers came from men. That doesn't disqualify women or doesn't discredit women for their contributions because they could not have been a man, prophet, or messenger without having first come through the, the womb of a woman. 
come through not just the physical womb of the mother, but the nurturing womb of the mother. The woman had to teach him how to talk. The woman had to teach him how to walk. The woman had to teach him, you know, etiquette, behaviors, manners. That's a womb as well. That's a womb. That's the second womb. We came through the first womb, you know, the physical womb into the world. And then as of being released into the world, we entered into another womb, and that was the womb of the, the nurturing mother. The maternal nurturing of a woman, that's a second womb. And there we are nurtured. We're taught character. We're taught behavior. We're taught manners. We're taught principles. We're taught discipline, right? We're taught how to read, how to write, how to comprehend, how to accept and receive instructions. All of that comes from the mother. That's the second womb. And all of those men grew up to be prophets and messengers. So when people say, well, why wasn't there any women prophet and messengers? Well, there could not have been prophets and messengers without women. So the woman doesn't have to stand on a podium next to the man to receive, you know, credence to, you know, to validate her, you know, you know, to validate her, her value. <laughs> She doesn't have to stand next to the man in order to feel validated. That's the whole issue with feminism. You, as a Muslim woman, your rights are there. You don't have to fight for rights. The rights are there. You just have to fight the Muslim men to make sure that they adhere to the rights. The rights are there. When are you fighting for you know, women's rights? You already have all the rights that you need in Islam. Everything. The Prophet ﷺ didn't leave a bird that flaps his two wings in the sky, except that he left us some knowledge about it. All the rights that you need as a Muslim woman are here. <laughs> are here. It's the enforcement of those rights. You understand? That's your issue. That's your struggle. That's your challenge. And you're not going to achieve that by yourself, which is why you need leaders that speak on behalf of, of the women and their rights and speak on behalf of the children, the two vulnerable people in our communities. As the Prophet said, the Prophet said, Allahumma inni la uharriju al-mar'a wal yateen. He said, I swear by Allah, Allahumma, by Allah, I swear by Allah that I will avenge the rights of the two vulnerable people in my community as a woman and that is an orphan. Women and children. So essentially, the Prophet ﷺ, he stood up for women's rights. His last khutbah, he addressed the men about their treatment of the women and how that was in a manner. And he, you know, he addressed that in his final khutbah. When the women came to his house complaining that their husbands were physically abusing them, he got on the minbar and he addressed the men about it. That's when you have sturdy leadership that actually cares, that is actually concerned, that actually understands the blueprint. That's the blueprint. That's the blueprint. We lost sight of that for whatever reason. Misogyny have become boys clubs and we lost sight of the real issue. And that is, you know, advocating for the vulnerable and the vulnerable in our community is none other than women and children. They are the two most vulnerable people in our communities. And they get the least amount of attention. They get the least amount of attention in the community. But knowledge, and I, I'm not talking about when I say knowledge, I'm not talking about, you know, um, 
I'm not talking about knowledge in the form of information, ma'lumat. I'm not talking about knowledge in the form of information. I'm talking about knowledge in the form of tatbiq, application. <laughs> I'm talking about application. The whole reason that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala commanded the angels to prostrate to Adam was because of the knowledge that Allah taught him. وَعَلَّمَ آدَمَ الْأَسْمَاءَ كُلَّهَا and Allah told, taught Adam the, the names of everything, taught him, gave him knowledge of everything. And then he said to the angels, prostrate to Adam. The angels prostrated to Adam, not because of his physical appearance, but because of the knowledge that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave him that he didn't give to anybody else. So essentially the angels prostrating to Adam was an extolment of Adam based upon knowledge. <laughs> You can't extol, you can't praise, you can't raise a person that is ignorant. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I can't praise a person and give him the accolades of somebody that, you know, that and they don't deserve it. I'm sorry. I can't I can't do that. But you have a lot of that going on today. Oh, Sheikh so and so or Imam so and so and it's just like if you knew what I knew about this person You know, but anybody that can bedazzle you with some speech and use a little bit of Arabic, use a little bit of Arabic phrases and terms, you know, seem like they they get the limelight. <laughs> they get the limelight. But when you dig deep, you go past a certain, you go past the second or third layer, you find out, you know, mind the shape. He doesn't have anything. He can't contribute to any legitimate conversation about Islam, about community, about family, about anything. Can't contribute much of anything. But we raise people and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala humiliates them. We raise them, Allah brings them back down. Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sets the bar. You understand? Absolutely. Actions speak louder than, than words. It's not about what you know, it's about what you do. It's not about what you know, it's about what you do. On the day of judgment, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will take the, the person who fought in the cause of Allah, the person who gave charity, and the scholar. And he will. these will be the first three people that will be questioned on the day of judgment, right? And then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will take the scholar. Allah will make him acknowledge the blessing that Allah gave him, which was the blessing of knowledge. And then Allah will ask him what? What did you do with the knowledge that I gave? What did you do? What did you do with the knowledge that I gave you? You understand? It's not about what you know. It's about what you do with what you know. It's not about what you know. It's about what you do with what you know. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will ask you about what you do. It was because of this Imam Ahmed rahimahullah ta'ala said ma alimtu hadithan illa wa amiltu bihi walaw marratan wahida li alla yakuna hujjatan aliyya It was because of this Imam Ahmed said that I never memorized the hadith except that I acted upon the hadith even if it was just one time so that that hadith would not be a proof against me on the day of judgment I would act upon the hadith if I learned it 
even if it was just one time, so that when I stand in front of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and I'm questioned about the information that I retained and Allah asked me, well, what did you do? I at least can say I implemented it, even if it was just one time, I practiced it. I practiced it, even if it was just one time. He said, so I read in a hadith that the Prophet sallallahu got hijama, got cupping done, and he gave the person who did the hijama, gave him a dinar or a dirham. He says, so I went and got cupped and I gave the person who cut me a dirham. Because I read in the hadith, the Prophet sallallahu gave him a dirham. He got cupped, he got uh, the cupping done, the hijama done, and he gave the guy a dinar for giving him hijama. He says, so I went and I got hijama done. And I gave the guy a dinar for doing it. Understand? Because I didn't want to read the hadith and just store it, you know what I mean, and just leave it there and never act upon it. I read a hadith that the Prophet did this, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, so I turned around and I did it. Understand? So my question is with all of this knowledge running around our communities, how is that translating into practical application? Is it just theoretical? Is it just sitting in front of the sheikh? And the sheikh is saying here, and what the sheikh is saying here, and what the sheikh is saying here, and the only time you see the individual is when you either go to their masjid or they're sitting in front of a camera. That's the only time you see them. But out in the community and doing work and hands on the grassroots and you know really building something substantial, you don't really see that. You don't see it. You just hear a bunch of words. You just hear, you know, but where's the implementation? That becomes the problem. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala commanded Muslim men to teach their families, to teach their families, to educate your family. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Quran about Prophet Ismail, that he used to instruct his family with salat and with zakat. He used to instruct his family to pray and to give charity. And he was pleasing to his Lord. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala was pleased with Ismail. This is a man. This is how you run your family. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Quran, Ya ayyuhalladina amanu ku anfusakum wa ahlikum nara. Oh, oh, you who believe, talking to the men, oh, you Muslim men who believe, save yourselves and your families from the fire whose fuel is men and stone or idols. Ibn Abbas commented on the ayah and he said, to alimuhum wa to adibuhum. Teach your family knowledge of the religion and teach them etiquette. To adibuhum, teach them adab, implementation of the knowledge. And the greatest way that a man teaches his family is not through take out a book, go get the Quran. I'm going to teach y'all something from the Quran today. No, the greatest way that you teach your family is through practical implementation. Children learn through observational learning. You have to model what you want them to do. They have to see it. They have to see it. It's called modeling. <laughs> You have to model the behavior that you want them to implement. 
You want them to get up on time for Salat? You got to get up on time for Salat. You can't say, go pray. Meanwhile, you're sitting in another room watching TV, playing video games, but you're telling your children to go pray. No. Turn the game off. Turn the TV off. Let's go pray. Let's do this together. You have to model the behavior that you want them. They have to see you do it first. And this is where many marriages of men who, you know, trying to give non-Muslim women dawah, trying to tell you Muslim man, but you're messing with a non-Muslim woman and you call yourself giving her dawah and trying to invite her to Islam. But she doesn't really respect you like that as a Muslim to convert to Islam because, you know, you flawed from top to bottom. <laughs> you say one thing, but you do something totally different. You tell her that drinking is haram, but you smoke weed. Okay, you don't drink, but you smoke. And then when she corrects you on it, then when she checks you about it, well, you know, it seems pretty hypocritical that you would chide me and, you know, advise me about drinking, but yet you smoke weed. Well, then you'll come up with all of your million and one excuses for why you smoke weed. Well, it's from the earth. God, didn't, Allah didn't really make it haram. You know, there's some difference of opinion amongst the scholars. Man, knock it off. Knock it off, man. You serious? Knock it off, man. But yet you study. <laughs> you, she ain't going to never accept. And the sad thing about it is that she might actually accept Islam. And you might be so big headed enough to believe that she accepted Islam because of you. Matter, she didn't. She did accept Islam because of you, because she saw you and said, that is not the type of Muslim that I want to be. So yeah, she did accept Islam because of you, not in a positive way, in a negative way. <laughs> All right, well then she marries you, converts to Islam, and then she's, she surpasses you in her knowledge of the religion and her understanding of the religion and her love of the religion. She surpasses you and then she starts to realize how in the world did I ever even end up with somebody like That, that's a fact. Evidenced by many Muslim women who are still here who started off messing with a Muslim man. And that Muslim man is still out there messing with other women. Meanwhile, she's a practicing Muslim woman. Walilahi alhamd. I see people sending me requests to be in the video. This is probably not the time to be requesting to be in the video. This is, this is, check the temperature. The temperature in the room is not welcoming to bringing anybody on tonight. It's not the temperature. Don't send a request, because if I bring you on, conversation might not be to your liking. Anyway, I, I'm going to stop here, because I just kind of, uh, went over my time. Uh, so much more, man, that we need to talk about, man. SubhanAllah, man. But knowledge, in you can't lead if you're ignorant. You can't lead if you're ignorant. And let me just say this before I end. For the Muslim men who are still on the ropes of what it means to be a leader and what it means to have knowledge, right? Knowledge is not you waiting for you know, some student of knowledge or some imam to tell you what to do. That, that's not knowledge. 
That's not knowledge. Knowledge is you taking the initiative, you taking the first step, even when you don't have necessarily all the facts, but you have a family to lead and you have to make a decision. You understand? Leaders don't wait for consensus. Real leaders don't sit around and wait for consensus, a consensus that might not actually even happen. You got to ask 50 people before y'all make a decision and y'all all conflicted. This one is going this way. This one is going back. I'm, I'm not. Huh. I have to pull the trigger. I have to make a decision. And that doesn't mean that I'm going to be right. I could be wrong, but I have to make a decision. That's what it means to act upon your knowledge, not go to this person, go to that person. You know, that's that's not knowledge. You have the same information they have. You go on to say, I remember we asked a particular sheikh about something. It's like, sheikh, well, what about if this? And the sheikh said, if you want to follow my opinion, you could just come to my house and I can tell you to get this and pick that up and do this and do that. Like, Ali Nasr al-Faqihi is the sheikh. We was at his house one time. Brothers from Masjid Rahma, they came and they was asking the sheikh all of these questions. And the sheikh was like, at what point do you guys use your own intellect? He said, you guys are asking me things that you know more about your situation than I do. He said, if you want to just be a follower, you could just come to my house and stay and live with me. And I'll tell you to pick up this and I'll tell you to do that and do that. And you can just follow everything I tell you to do. At what point do you guys use your own intellect to figure things out for yourself? You're asking me a question that you already know the Islamic Dalil for. <laughs> you already know what ayat I'm going to quote, what hadith I'm going to give to you. If you already know that, why are you asking me? You know your situation better than I do. Why are you asking me about what goes on in America and what, you know, what should you do in America? And what's Literally, the, the question that they asked him, uh, you know, the imam during that time, Abu Muhammad and Maghribi, he gets on the minbar and tells everybody that, you know, and this is public knowledge, so I'm not necessarily backed by him, but those who know, know, uh, it was public, right? And he got on the minbar and he told the brothers, you know, um, wearing clothes of the kuffar were haram, meaning wearing anything other than a thobe was haram. And he said this on the minbar in front of everybody. And so some of the, you know, caused an uproar in the community. And so when the brothers came to make umrah, we arranged, uh, we arranged the, you know, a discussion with Sheikh Ali Nasser at his house with the brothers, and uh, one of the brothers on the administration had explained to me what was said on the minbar and how people responded to it, and uh, they wanted, you know, a scholar's opinion on it, and so, you know, I, I asked the Sheikh. I said, you know, some of the brothers said, you know, wearing, you know, and obviously we didn't throw him under the bus. He just said that, you know, some of the brothers had taken an opinion that wearing anything other than a thobe was haram. And the sheikh, you know, it was just embarrassing, man. Like, I was almost embarrassed to even ask the question. How you come from America asking a Saudi scholar who lives in an environment where all they wear is thobes, and you live in an environment where, you know, maybe 1% of the population wears thobes, you know, to Jumu'ah, to the masjid, you know what I mean? And you come in to ask him about 
what you should wear in your environment. It's just embarrassing. It's embarrassing. I was embarrassed for him. I was embarrassed for the community to even, you know, it's just like, because you see the Sheikh on a daily basis, you know, in the Haram or at the university. And it's like, he's looking at you now, like, these are the people you come from? Like, this is the environment that you're going back to? May Allah have mercy on you, man. You know what I mean? Like, and you kind of feel embarrassed that these are the type of, what all of the problems going on in our society, going on in our community, you get an opportunity to come make umrah and get an opportunity to sit with a caliber, the, the caliber of scholar Ali Nasser was. And the only thing that you could think to ask him is, Sheikh, whether or not it's haram to wear anything other than a thawb. And it's just like, you know, so I'm just kind of giving you guys, this, this is my orientation this is my history this is you know the things that i have been dealing with for so many years you know and then to arrive at this point now where we're kind of dealing with you know make no mistake about it that all of this stuff is connected we're still dealing this is still the residual effects of all of that it's not independent of that. This is not a separate issue. This is not an issue that has nothing to do with that. It's all connected. It's all connected. The dots all connect. Make no mistake about that. It's all connected. It's just the residual effects. So knowledge, you can't lead ignorantly. You can't lead ignorantly. And, you know, with COVID, it kind of put Muslim men, you know, on front street now because now we had to lead our communities. We, ha we had to lead our families in the home. The masajid are closed. You're now in the house with your children. So you're going to recite Kuhu Allahu Ahad. How many times before your children are like, well, Abby, you know, that's that's the only story you know? That's the only story you know? Like you leave the Salat, Maghrib, Isha, you pray Salat al-Tarawiyah with us. And, you know, every other, you know, everything that you recite is from the shorter, shorter surahs from the Quran. It's just like, so you've been all of these years taken from this one, sitting in this lecture, sitting in this daughter's, listening to this one and that one. And all of this time has gone by and you haven't memorized a substantial amount of the Quran so that you can lead your family in Salat. So it really kind of exposed, you know, some of the bigger problems that we need to focus on. And here again, we're talking about family, marriage, you know, family issues. We're talking about real issues in our communities. Knowledge, you can't lead if you're ignorant. You can't lead your family. You can't lead yourself. You can't lead yourself, you can't lead your family, you can't lead your community, you can't lead your ummah, you can't lead anybody with ignorance. And you can't make decisions if you have the information, but you don't have the testicular fortitude to make the decision that that, that information dictates. You have the information, you know the ayah, you know the hadith, you know the statements of the scholars, you know the fatawa, you know the, you know it all, but you don't have the personal fortitude 
to make the decision because you are afraid of what this person's going to say, what that person's going to say. You're afraid of going against the grain over here. Going, then, then your knowledge is. <laughs> then your knowledge is is inconsequential. Your your knowledge is inconsequential, and I mean, like, don't get me wrong. Um, even if you only knew a, a few chapters from the Quran, from the you know the the thirty last last juz of the Quran, once Corona hit and you realize that you know the masajid are closed and I gotta now leave my family, that should have prompted you. Let me let me memorize some more short surahs. You know what I mean? Like as parents, we're always put in situations where we don't necessarily have the answers right there on the spot, but we gotta. We do we do a great job of giving our children the illusion that we got we got it all figured out, but we don't have it all figured out. I mean, even when COVID hit for me, there was certain sores that I had to go back and I had to you know revise, I had to revisit, and I had to go back and you know because these are sores that I wasn't reciting on a daily basis. These are not you know longer chapters or longer you know verses from the Quran that you don't necessarily recite on a day-to-day -day basis but now that you're home you're making salatul tarawiyah in the home so you know you want to go back and you want to visit i mean that that even applies to me so i'm not condemning or shaming anybody for only knowing a certain portion of the Quran but true leadership would have prompted you would have pushed you propelled you you know to go and dig deeper because now i have a family to lead they're looking up to me, daddy, you know, we're, we're, what sores are we reciting? Okay, and then once you run out of sores, I mean, even if you don't know a lot of sores, but you know how to read the Quran in Arabic, then you can always read from the Mus'haf. You can always read from the Mus'haf. But if you don't even know how to read Arabic, you don't know how to read from the Mus'haf. Then on top of that, you send your children to Islamic school, your children may know more Quran and more Arabic than you do. So essentially your son, your daughter becomes the leader of the home in terms of knowledge. How embarrassing is it is that? How how embarrassing is that? You know, so leadership, you know, this is and I mean, I can go on and on and on about, you know, the the qualities and the characteristics that are missing amongst the men in today's time and, and real knowledge is, is missing. Not just knowledge in terms of information, but also a tatbiq, the implementation of the knowledge, the personal fortitude that individuals have, that I have the information, I'm gonna make a decision. I'm gonna make a decision based upon the information that I have. You understand? That's what I'm talking about. That doesn't mean that you have to be a great scholar. That means that I know the ayat, I know the hadith. There are many times I get emails, I get questions from brothers, and I'm like, dude, you you know the ayat. You you know the ayat, you know the hadith. So so the reason why you're asking me is because you're asking for confirmation. You don't need permission to be the man, right? You don't need the permission to be a man. You don't need permission from another man to be a man. That's a fact. You don't need permission from another man to be a man. You don't need to send a student a knowledge or send anybody an email asking them, can you do this, can you do this? And they're gonna to quote to you the same ayat and hadith that you already know. What you're doing is you're looking for confirmation. You're looking for confirmation. And rather than you just saying, hey, 
this is the eye this is the hadith this is the decision that i'm th i'm thinking about making you know do you think that's a good idea what you're doing now is you're steel sharpening steel so what you're doing is you're bouncing it off me as another man but that doesn't affect your decision one way or another. You just want another opinion. You just want to pick another man's brain to say, hey, you know, this is the direction that I'm going. This is what I'm thinking about doing. You know, you know, what would you do in that situation? And a person will say, well, you know, if it was me, blah, blah, blah. And then now you have another opinion to kind of bounce it off of. That's one thing. But to say, hey, you know, what should I do in this situation? Meanwhile, you know the I, you know the hadith, you know exactly what you should be doing. It's just like, why are you asking me? You're asking me for, for confirmation. You don't need another man's confirmation to be a man. You understand? You don't need another man's confirmation to be a man. Pull the trigger. You have to answer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, regardless of what anybody tells you. Right? As the Prophet said to the man, I'll end with this hadith. Man came to the Prophet the Prophet said, You came to ask me about righteousness, didn't you? He said, Yes. He said, He said, Ask your heart. You don't need confirmation from me about whether this is right, this is wrong. Ask your heart. How does your heart feel when you do it? You understand? The Prophet was so wise. He said, You came to ask me about righteousness. He said, Ask your heart. How does your heart feel when you do it? He said, Righteousness. He said, Righteousness is that which your heart feels content. When you do it, you don't feel any difficulty. You, don't, you feel good after you've done it. That's righteousness. Because I can go into all day, Allah says this, Allah says this, Allah says this. The Prophet is giving him something tangible that he can work with. Tangible. A measurable, you know, a yardstick by which he can measure whether or not this is good or not. I'm going to give you something tangible. Ask your heart. How does your heart feel when you do it? Ask your heart. He said, righteousness is that which the heart like it's it's like you feel tranquil, you feel at ease, you feel at peace when you do it. You, there's there's no haraj, there's no difficulty in your chest. He said in sin, well if the mahakaf in nafs, when 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 He said and sin is that which wavers in the chest when you do it, you feel unsettled. You feel uncomfortable. You start to second question yourself. Man, I probably shouldn't have done that. Because you're checking in with your heart. Your heart is telling you, ah, that wasn't a good move. Your body will tell you. Your body talks to you. You just have to be able to listen to it. Your body tells you when you're tired. Your body tells you when you're doing too much. Your body tells you when you're stressed out. The body tells you everything. Your body tells you when you committed a sin, when you did something that's wrong, when you did something that's probably displeasing to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you start to feel it. And that's provided that your heart is still alive. Right. This is for the believer that your heart is still alive. As Allah says in the Quran, إِنَّمَا يَسْتَجِيبُ الَّذِينَ يَسْمَعُونَ that the only people that can respond to you are those who can still hear with their hearts. You know what I mean? Those whose hearts are still alive. <laughs> They're listening. <laughs> the, the message is penetrating. These are the only people that are going to respond. Provided your heart is still alive. 
He said, but sin is what wavers in the chest and you hate people finding out about it. You try to hide it. You don't want, you know, here again, sliding in the DM. So you don't want, you know, if, if every sister here was to put a brother on blast, a brother as, 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 as soon or as early as today, how many brothers jumped in your DM today? If you were to put them brothers on blast right now, tag them in there and tag their name that this guy jumped in my DM today, this guy was just talking to me today, they would be embarrassed. And the reason why you would be embarrassed is because you know that it's hard. Understand? He says, sin, nefs, is what wavers in the chest. It's unsettling. And you hate people finding out about it. You don't want anybody to know about it. That's an indication that it's wrong. He said, He said, even if people give you Islamic ruling telling you that it's okay, your heart is still telling you this joint don't feel right. Don't feel right. I don't care what this person said. I don't care what that person said, right? That were falsified fatawa that was issued years ago that it was okay to marry a woman with the intention of to divorce her. Basically, muta, another way of practicing muta. I'm gonna marry you, but I have the intention of divorcing you in three days. I marry you. I consummate the marriage. We have sex for a few more times. And then I split. I'm out. And there's some people who bought into that. There was, you know, a narration that goes back to a particular student of knowledge that oral sex was not Zena. Was not Zena. Oral sex is not Zena. It's a sin. You're just basically putting your mouth on somebody else's private part. So we oversimplify it. A sin by another name is still a sin. That's what Shaitan did with Adam by saying that the tree that Allah forbids you from eating from is the tree of everlasting life. Shajratul khuldi. The tree of everlasting life. It's still the same tree that Allah told you not to eat from. You can call it by whatever name you want to call it by. You understand? And the scholars, they have a principle, a qa'idah. تغيير اسم الشيء لا يدل على حقيقته. تغيير اسم الشيء. Changing the name of something does not, لا يغير حقيقته. Does not change its reality. Changing the name of something does not change the reality of it. The fact of the matter is you can say, oh, well, oral sex is not, it's not like Zena, right? It's not committing Zena. It's not like the actual, the act of penetrating the person, all right, the major sin that people will be in the hellfire for. It's just you putting your mouth on the private part of somebody else, right? You oversimplify it. But the fact of the matter is that it's still, it's still a sin. Sin by any other name is still a sin, right? And even if people tell you that it's not a major sin, it's not, even after you did it, you can't tell me that you didn't feel horrible afterwards. 
You didn't feel horrible afterwards. Obviously, you felt horrible afterwards. And that was the indicator that it was wrong from the door. It doesn't matter what people tell you. Some people tell you it's okay to smoke marijuana. You know, how do you feel after you do it? That's my question. How do you feel after you do it? You feel like a full believer or you feel like your Iman decreased just a little bit? You feel like, maybe I shouldn't have did that. Maybe I shouldn't have done it. Or do you walk away feeling nothing? <laughs> and if you feel nothing, then that doesn't necessarily mean that it's right. It might be an indication that your heart is dead. You understand? Just because you don't feel bad about it doesn't mean that it's right. It might mean that your heart is dead. So you can't you can't process it spiritually. Your heart is numb. It's the ran, it's the, the stain that is on your heart that prevents you from feeling anything. You don't feel anything. So you walk around thinking, well, I don't feel anything. So I check with my heart. My heart is okay. I, I you know, I puff. It doesn't really matter. It doesn't really bother me. No, it doesn't bother. Of course it doesn't bother you. Your heart is black. <laughs> we seek refuge with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala from a black heart. But your heart is black. So you can't tell the difference between halal or haram anyway. That's one of the, the indicators that you have a black heart. Is that you can't differentiate between halal and haram. Halal and haram are filtered through your desires, your hawa. So you can't differentiate. That's one of the signs of a black heart. Allah, I can I can go on and on and on and on and on. La ilaha illallah. Anyway, inshallah, we'll we'll pick up maybe Sunday, maybe Monday. We'll we'll see, inshallah, what my schedule looks like. But I appreciate you guys. And, you know, here again, I'm, I'm not trying to shame anybody. I'm not trying to make anybody feel bad. But I do want us to, you know, come back. You know what I mean? Like, it, it looks bleak, man. I, I'm, I'm scared. I'm scared, man. You know, I, I never thought a, a day would come where I would be afraid to even be around Muslims. But it's, 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 it's sad, man. It really is, man. And I, I pray that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala restore you know, rejuvenate our faith and restore us, you know, back on the Surat al-Mustaqeem, the straight path that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you know, allow us to, you know, regain, you know, our spiritual fortitude, man, that has been stolen from us by so many, you know, so many challenges that we are facing, man, you know, and it's it's really sad, man, and and social media doesn't make it easier, you know, we look out on social media and we see Muslims, you know, just kind of taking everything as a joke, Man, like people are dying today, like living is going out of style. And, you know, it's just, it's crazy, man. Brothers and sisters, man, you got to get your affairs in order, man. Get your affairs in order, man. The angel of death does not give you a warning. The angel of death doesn't say, I'll be there tomorrow. Get your affairs in order. The angel of death comes and that's it. As you see your soul departing from your body, separating from your body, you're like, whoa, wait a minute. I wasn't ready. Hold up. Oh, I didn't do. It's a wrap. It's over. It's over. 
You have an opportunity right now, starting with Toba, starting asking Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You don't need to explain to nobody your situation. You don't need to explain to nobody what sins you committed. You don't need to explain to any of your, this is your journey, your journey, your experience, your relationship with God. You don't owe nobody no explanation for what you did and why you did it, man. That's your, that's between you and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Your safha jadida, your new page starts with toba to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Repent sincerely to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and start from there. Allah is willing to meet you wherever you are. You come to him walking, he comes to you running. You take a step towards him, he takes more steps towards you. You come to him a handspan, he comes to you an arm length. Whenever you're ready, but you don't have forever. You don't have forever. Start with rectifying between what is between you and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will slowly but surely begin to help you rectify what is between you and the people, you know, in your experience. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for his forgiveness. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for his infinite mercy. Allahumma la takilna, Allahumma rahmataka narju, fala takilna ila anfusina. Tarafa ta'ayn wa aslih lana shatnana kullaha la ilaha ila ant. Oh Allah, your mercy is what we hope for. So do not leave us to ourselves even for the time that it takes to blink of it, a blinking eye and rectify all of our affairs. There is none worthy of worship except you. Ya dal jalali wal ikram. Allahumma ya arhamar rahimin. Oh Allah, the most merciful of those who have mercy. Irhamna wa lana wa rahamna. Anta maulana fa'unsurna ala al-qawm al-kafirin. Oh Allah, we ask you for your mercy. We ask you for your forgiveness. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, please have mercy upon us and forgive us. Oh Allah, give us a good ending. Make our ending an ending that is pleasing to you, subhanahu wa ta'ala. Allahumma ati nafsi anfusina taqwaha wa zakiha anta khayra man zakaha anta waliyuha wa mawlaha. Oh Allah, give our souls its taqwa and purify it for you are the best to purify and you are its wali wa maulaha, you are its guardian and its protector. Wa sallallahu ala nabiyyina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallama tasliman kathira. Wa akhiru da'wana anil hamdulillahi rabbil alameen. Wa sallamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.